the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 617, for Sunday, August 7th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show. Where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share your tips, we share your cool stuff found. And the goal is for all of us to learn at least three, no, four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this week's episode include Casper at Casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off of a fantastic mattress. Gazelle at gazelle.com where you can sell or buy uh, used iPhones and uh, make they make it really easy. We'll talk about that shortly. And the PDF pen family from smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. And we'll talk more about that. All of it very, very shortly here and here. Yes, here, right here where I am at the moment where you are not in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How are you today, Mr. John F. Braun? You know, I am a lot cooler than I was a couple of days ago. Because I found, yet again, Dave, my devices lie to me. Okay. What am I talking about, you ask? So actually, I found I this. no so, idea. Um, this is, so this is, is what I love about this show. <laughs> so this is my car. So it's my car again. But the thing oh. is, you know, I got an AC in the car and uh, no, and I found something else here is it lies, all lies. So, you know, uh, cars have air conditioning and there's coolant and sometimes you have to add coolant uh, if it's leaked out or whatever. And so, um, but I had added some and I even got this little gauge and it says, oh, okay, well, you know, when, uh, when it's engaged and all that, it, you know, if it's at whatever PSI, um, you know, that, that should be good enough. But my AC just wasn't doing the job. And I'm like, you know what? The, the gauge was wrong, wasn't it? Uh, no, the, oh. actually, I bought another can of it. And it said, well, you know what? The pressure is kind of dependent on the ambient temperature. Sure. And the thing is, it was just low enough where the AC wasn't doing its job. It was at like 30. Yeah. And it said, well, you know, if the ambient temperature is this, then it really should be 35 to 40. And I'm like, you know what? So, you know, I went to my local store, bought a can of the stuff, pumped it up, and it was like night and day. The other thing I noticed was when I had parked my car after, you know, it was working swimmingly, there was a big puddle of water, which... Uh, yeah, that's a good for, sign. For, for yeah. most ACs shows that they are, you know, it's when the ice on the uh, things melt. And right. I was like, I've never... Because I, I wasn't seeing that. I was like, you know, is it working right? I mean, it's engaging, but it's just not cooling. So... Well, there, I'm a lot cooler. There's I, car, I can talk, back up. car talk for real. That's right. Which, you know, we're just preparing you folks. These these tangentially unrelated anecdotes from Mr. John F. Braun here are actually him being amazingly prescient because when Apple releases their Apple car, we're going to be so far ahead of the game. It's redonkulous is what it is. That's right. So... Um, I, uh, since we're on these tangents here, I might as well start us on a tangent that's actually related to the, at least current, uh, subject matter of, of this show. And that is, uh, I finally convinced my dad to move to the Mac. Um, now you have to understand he moved over from a, he thinks 12, I think it's more like 13 or 14 year old windows XP machine. And, uh, 
And so it, it was time for him to get a new computer. And I told him years ago, I said, look, I'll help you with your Windows XP machine. Uh, that's fine. But, w you know, whenever co the time comes to replace it, if you choose to get a Windows machine again, uh, you're doing that with full knowledge that I'm really not interested in uh, in supporting it. Of course, I would have helped him with it. But uh, but I told him, like, you know, you got to get a Mac. And so, you know, he's got an iPhone now and and, you know, that that warmed him to the Apple universe. And we always had Apple twos and stuff growing up. So, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not a, um, it's not, it's not a foreign entity to him. He just is used to, you know, windows cause that's what he'd used at work. So that's what he wound up getting, which is fine. But, uh, but yeah, so we got him a MacBook pro 15 inch because he needed to get a computer and it wasn't worth waiting until December when the new MacBook pros come out. But, uh, but the new MacBook, or the, the you know the the current MacBook Pro was perfect for him. Uh, Fifteen inch was right. I think it's going to be a great machine for him. And we, um, you know, so here's actually I'll, I'll share this. This we we went down to our local Apple reseller, uh, Apple service provider called Mac Edge here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And yes, I could have bought this machine, uh, basically the same machine online with a refurb and saved you know probably two hundred and fifty three hundred bucks. But um, I wanted my dad to feel like he had someone local in addition to me that he could go to. Now, we all know that no matter where you buy your, your, your Mac, you could buy it at an Apple store, you could buy it online, you could buy a refurb, anybody will service it. But your local Apple provider, if you buy from them, they're going to do a little bit more for you because, you know, they made money off the sale. So, uh, so we went down there and did that. And then of course I, you know, I, I wouldn't let my dad pay for the computer. So we, you know, we took care of that for him because, uh, because you know, that's how it works. He bought me my first Mac. So I figured I'd buy him his first Mac, but, um, so we got it for him there and I'm, I'm happy that we did that. And then, and then we got the machine and it's, you know, it's got a five twelve gig SSD or 500 gig SSD, whatever it works out to be. And I had to migrate all his data over. Well, as it turns out, Apple's migration assistant for Windows still works on XP and it really worked well. Um, you know, you run the thing on XP. I connected the two machines up via a direct ethernet cable. So there was no internet involved. I didn't want the Windows machine to be trying. It's too slow and whatever. I just wanted it to be, you know, single purpose. So we did that. They got their own addresses and saw each other. No problem. The app on, on the Windows side said, yep, go launch, you know, migration assistant on the Mac. They paired up and then the Mac showed me a list of everything that was on his, uh, his Windows machine. And it also showed me his external drive and said, do you want data from this? And I thought, well, sure. I mean, I could just plug the external drive into his machine or into, you know, his new machine. But, but if we're going to go through the copy process and we're just going to let this copy overnight, we might as well have just have a copy of everything all at once. So we did that and I came back uh, the next morning. This is uh, Saturday morning and everything it says both, both sides, both computers confirmed. Yep. Everything's all good. Like, sweet. So I can, you know, finish setting it up and I launch his email and sure enough, there's like his old um, outlook email archive is there. I had to enter a password in here or there, but you know, all that stuff pretty much worked. iTunes, same way. It found all his stuff from iTunes, migrated it in all his playlist, everything totally fine. His documents are in his Mac's documents folder. His desktop from windows is in his desktop folder. I'm like, okay, his photos didn't make it, but that made sense because he managed his photos basically in a series of folders. I and mean, this is something 
um, that is going to be a tip for anyone, even if you've never used a Windows machine. If you've got folders, or if, yeah, if you've got a, a series of, of folders uh, full of your photos. Uh, so migration assistant didn't pull this in, which I didn't expect it to. And it was stored on his external drive because he didn't have enough room on his internal to store his photos. And I'm looking and looking and trying to find where these photos were. And I can't find them. Like, man, I know it copied them. Like, I, it took long enough that it would have to have copied them. I hunted and hunted and hunted and finally started looking outside of his user folder. And in... Uh, in the users folders, so the kind of the one level up from your user folder, there's a folder now called shared data. And I look in that and there it is. It's basically says extra stuff from drive C. So all the stuff that was on drive C that it didn't know what to do with, it put there and all the stuff from drive G, which was his external drive, it put there. So I found all the data. It's like, great. And then I started thinking, well, if I import, and I tried this with some test runs, and I even tried it with some test runs on my machine. If you point photos at a folder of photos that has subfolders in it where you've categorized things, photos will see all of the pictures that you've got there and will import them. But it is one lump import, and all the categorization that you've done with folders is dead to you now. And that sucks. So I started thinking, well, man, I'd love to. And he's even said, he's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, the only reason I did that was so that he said he had a way of knowing when the pictures were taken. And as we all know, photos will show you that anyway, because it preserves all the metadata. I'm like, well, okay, that's fine, dad. But let me dig around a little. And I looked and I looked and I did some searching and yep, everybody confirmed what I was finding that the photos just ignores all that. And then I thought, wait a minute, what about our friend power photos? And so I downloaded a copy of power photos to my dad's computer and registered it and told it to import the photos. And it preserved a hundred percent of his folder structure as albums. It didn't take very long. It took, I mean, he had, I think he had 17 gigs worth of photos. Now, of course it's on a, you know, fast SSD, but it, it took, I don't know, you know, maybe 20 minutes or something, not even. And it pulled it all together and everything is there. So he's got all his photos, all the metadata, and if he wants it, his folder structure as albums now. So yet another reason to go use Power Photos. And while they're not a sponsor of this episode, they are a sponsor of the show. You should, if you're going to go get it, uh, go to fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG and coupon code MGG saves you like 20% or something. But, uh, but they totally saved the day for, uh, for my dad's folder structure there. And, uh, but otherwise, the Windows Migration Assistant thing it worked. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I was pretty impressed with it. It's pretty good. So sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding foot, well, we touched on this in the last episode, but you can, and actually I linked to this article, but, um, you know, we were talking about referenced files in photos and how you can do that, but it's, well, but it still wouldn't have pulled them. You could, we could have referenced it and kept them in folders, but photos would not have shown us the folders. Yes. Like, that was the thing Agreed. I was trying to, I was like trying to like, I'm like, he's done all this work, but he had, you know, a hundred albums. I'm like, I don't want to do this manually, you know? <laughs> and, and that's what made me think yeah. of power photos. And, and again, can, it just, you know, so. Yeah. And uh, yeah, from what I can tell, doing reference photos with photos, 
yeah, it's just going to be one big blob, and that's uh, then you lose a lot of work. No, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I had the same thing when I migrated from uh, Aperture to Photos, and I had somebody ask me a question about that, and I'm, I'm getting back to you on that. Okay. Uh, to the person. But, um, but yeah, it maintained my, um, you know, and that's a big value, you know, uh, using a program like that or, you know, migrating is uh, to retain all of the work you did in the albums. And when I went from Aperture to Photos, all my albums and you know, all sure. the work that I put in was still there. It actually, yeah. you know, it's funny because Aperture actually pulled it in from iPhoto and then I did like a second generation import and that information, you know, I've, I've migrated twice now, <laughs> my photo collection. Hopefully I won't have to do it again. I'm, I'm happy with photos. It, it does what I need. No, I, I, yeah, I'm happy to have dad using photos and all that stuff, but... Um you know, I just wanted to preserve all that stuff. So I was really stoked when it just, it, it didn't even ask, do you want to do this? It just assumed like, well, yeah, you've got this folder structure. Let's just put it over there. Oh, sweet. So, yeah. yeah I'm kind of great. sad because I almost went through the same adventure with my brother-in-law. He was like, yeah, our Windows machine is kind of slow. And yeah. he's kind of the same. He has an iPhone and an iPad, but he, his computer is a PC. And, and uh, he's like, you know, how, how would, the Mac work. And my answer was pretty much your answer is, well, they got a migration assistant. As long as all your data is in the right place. Yeah, and even if over. it's not, it, it really, it, again, the only thing is, is the stuff it doesn't know what to do with. It puts outside of your user folder. It actually creates a new user as migration assistant does. And, um, and, and then populates it, you know, as, as you would expect, but the stuff that it doesn't know what to do with, it puts, you know, essentially one level up and over. Um, in the, in the yeah. finder. So just knowing that that was there, I, I'm looking for like logs on this. It's got to tell me somewhere. I couldn't find yeah. a log. Yeah. There, there was- Sadly, he got back to me and said, well, I did a defrag of my rotational hard drive. And then I found this setting in windows where you can set it for high performance, which is like, huh? That's kind of mm-hmm. silly in my humble opinion. And he said, yeah, and I'm uh, going to stick with the PC a bit longer. Yeah. So that made me sad because uh, I think he'd like a Mac. And I yeah. said, hey, if you want to run the Windows, you can do it. You can do it in a vir- virtual machine, or you can migrate your stuff over, or yeah. both. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. All Back right. on so, track. Yeah, we've got... Um, so it's, it was good. It was, a, it was actually a really pleasant experience. I expected it to be a lot worse and a lot harder to do it. So kudos to, to Apple for, for making that as simple as possible. And obviously, kudos to... Uh, power photos for making that last little bit uh, work the right way. Okay. Uh, On to Chris. He has, well, I'll call it a tale of woe, but it's more a tale of woe as opposed to a tale of woe. Um, he, He says, I wanted to let you know about an iOS issue I picked up on this week. He said for a long time now, my wife has complained that her recently played her top 25 songs and her recently added playlists that she used extensively on her iPhone six were out of whack. To be honest, I continually put it down to user error uh, and never dug into it at all. But this week, I finally did. He said, you know, their Apple created smart playlists, so they couldn't possibly be wrong. He says the problem started happening a few years ago. In the distant past, she had a MacBook, but this was retired when she got an iPad, and she exclusively used the iPad for computing along with her iPhone. At this point, I'm pretty sure everything was fine and dandy. When the MacBook was retired, I saved it as a VM just in case. So I booted it up this week to see what was going on in those smart playlists. So there's a, a separate tip, folks. You know, we've been talking about what to do with your old, um, 
you know, your old computer, do you archive it as a disk image? Do you save it off to a drive? Well, this is another way to do it. It's just save it as a, a virtual machine and then you can boot into it at any time you want. And it just sort of preserves there. Uh, he says, I did, of course, spend considerable period of time upgrading the OS and apps to get it to a suitable level. He says, in retrospect, I could have just created a temporary account on my computer and logged into her Apple Music from that. Yes, not a bad idea. Uh, and he says, oddly, all the original criteria for these smart playlists had gotten screwed up. For example, the recently played was comprised of 25 random songs that had been added to the library in the last two years. To this end, my wife was getting Christmas songs randomly in July amongst other weird things. And I can understand why she was getting mad now seeing as the Mac and its VM has been booted up. Uh, I have no idea how the playlist got corrupted, but uh, there is no way of editing them on iOS. It appears you can edit on the Mac or in the VM in this case. So that's what I did by checking the criteria against my own music account that fixed the problem almost instantly on her iPhone uh, and sanity is restored in the household here. So what I'm curious about, so this is good, right? It, it, um, it, it's a, it's a good little tip to remember, but does the iPhone update these smart playlists or are they only updated when your Mac is like, like where is the, I know the logic for this can be preserved uh, across account or across computers, but where is it actually being performed? And I thought it was only iTunes that was updating these lists. So even though you fixed the criteria now, I'm not convinced that it's going to continually update those lists, but maybe it will, maybe with Apple music, it, it, it's been so long since I've, I've tested this, that it, it's worth, it's just worth pointing out and maybe asking you folks uh, to, to help us. But I, I thought smart playlists only were up to updated from iTunes the, the contents of them, you know, you know what I'm saying? John? Um, that's the info I'm getting here. There is a, uh, I mean, they got a dandy little support article here called iTunes 12 for Mac, create a smart playlist. And it, based on what that says, it seems to be a iTunes based thing. It's an iTunes based thing. That's what I thought. I didn't think the logic was happening on your phone or in the cloud, but, but that may have changed. I mean, you know, a lot of it obviously changed with Apple music. So uh, it would make sense, but since you can't create uh, smart playlists in Apple Music, and of course I'm I'm running the iOS 10 beta here, so I'm really the wrong person to be testing at the moment. But um, but I don't think you can't create a smart playlist. No, on the uh, and if I go into smart playlists here, can I edit it? No. Yeah, I'm not convinced. I'll have to do some mucking about and and like play some songs on my iPhone and see if the smart playlist of recently played gets updated or if it only gets updated when I then launch iTunes on my Mac. So, but I'll 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 play with it. We'll find out. Good. Thank you for uh thank you for sharing that Chris and thanks for starting the conversation. Brian writes to follow up on something. He said uh he sent us a link to an article where uh TP-Link has been forced by the FCC to allow third-party firmware to work on their routers. Uh, at, we've talked about it briefly here because 2016 really is the year of the router. But uh, TP, the, the FCC earlier in the year had pushed out uh, a set of restrictions so that router manufacturers had a little more responsibility when it came 
to making sure users couldn't operate outside of couldn't set their routers to operate outside of the ranges that are permitted in this country, in the U.S. And most router manufacturers just kind of baked something into the hardware that said great or worked with third party uh, firmware developers to maintain those restrictions, even when the uh, routers, you know, first party firmware, router manufacturers firmware wasn't on there. TP-Link announced that they were just going to punt on this and say, yeah, we're just going to block third-party firmware from working on our routers, and that way we don't have to think any harder about it. And that's actually fine. The FCC doesn't really have a problem with that, although it's clear now that was not their intent when they pushed these rules out. And then it turned out uh, that TP-Link was actually encouraging uh, users and showing them how to use... um, essentially banned channels or, or uh, power levels here in the U S. And so as part of their punishment, they have to pay, it's like 200 grand in fines or something. They obviously have to fix the problem and they now have to support third party firmware on their routers. It seemed like a very random thing for the FCC to throw in as, as sort of a, well, now your punishment is this, but, uh, but it is good for the consumer. So I'm, I'm really sort of proud of the FCC for, you know, saying, no, 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 you, you misinterpreted this, by the way. So you might want to have to go back to the, the drawing board on that one. So it's good. So TP-Link is, is off of the uh, blacklist as far as I'm concerned now, which is good. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I recently upgraded. They came out with an upgrade. They're, they're kind of weird with their firmware in that they, they seem to have multiple sites where you can get the firmware for their unit here. But I was, I was surfing their support area, and I was like, oh, look, the version of the firmware for my Archer C9 is newer. So I'm like, well, let me download it. Here's a caution. Well, this is a caution with upgrading firmware and just about anything. Yeah. Make a note of your settings, and don't, even if it's a settings file, that mm-hmm. may not be good enough. So a lot of devices let you save the settings, and then you can restore them. Uh, TP-Link, and, and I don't blame them, but um, the problem is if they add new features, then the old settings file may not necessarily make sense to the new firmware. So um, you may want to actually get to the point of either. I, I knew them in my head that I had to do certain mappings and certain DHCP settings. It wasn't that much of a pain in the neck. Yeah. It would have been nicer if I could just restore it from a file, but sure. because they changed the firmware. And they even warn you sometimes. One time when I upgraded it, they... Uh, all my settings were retained because the the changes weren't, you know, didn't add, I guess, any new features. It just fixed bugs. But yeah. this time around, it was like it just came out of the box. Right. <laughs> I mean, I actually yeah. start. Well, the thing is, I rebooted it and actually I actually lost access for yeah. all my wireless devices. It's like, uh, let me guess. They just reset themselves to the default IP address and and that's what they did. So here's here is um, as someone that changes routers, you know. Um, frequently Uh, here I've learned one thing and that is whenever I'm doing a firmware update on my router, I unplug all my ethernet devices for just this reason, just in case it wipes back to zero. I know my wireless devices aren't going to connect because it's a different net, you know, the default network name and password is not what they're looking for. So I'm not worried about my wireless devices connecting to the wrong router or the wrong IP range. But my Ethernet devices will be connected if they're plugged in. And what can happen there is your Ethernet devices get an IP in a different range and with a lease time that might be, you know, an hour or a day, depending on whatever the default of your router is. 
And now when you reconfigure your router the right way and bring it back up, you now can't see those devices anymore until their lease expires and they go get a new one. And then they're like, oh, wait, never mind. I see it. Right. So uh, I always unplug my Ethernet devices when I do that. Ah, just in good. case. Yep. I should have listened to your advice from the future then, because right. that's exactly what happened because they default, I think to one nine two. And the thing is I, I like using one seven two just because just to be different. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you, you should use something different than the default. Um, it just makes life easier in, in, in many cases, but not this one. Yeah. Yeah. But I ha actually had to access it via the default IP address via a wired connection because that was the only way I was able to get back to it. Right. Right. Well, you could probably could have connected wirelessly. Um, actually, no, you're right. They, they also offer a, yeah. So they also reset to hmm. separate radio names, you know, with the Mac address uh, right. for 2.4 and five gigs. And then they work a little magic where I think it's a TP dash link.net. Oh, and they map. find you. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, so once you connect to them and then you enter that IP address, you then can log in and they have a default admin Sweet. username and password. I think it's admin admin. Yeah. Right. Something. Yeah. Whatever the default. I could have done that too, but I, I chose the wired path to get to it. Yeah. And uh, if you're, if you're doing um, any configuration where you'd have to think about it, like DHCP reservations or port forwards, I highly recommend just taking screenshots of that and saving it in your Dropbox somewhere. Yeah. So that you have it available to any computer that, that you have or, or your phone. So if you've got to reconfigure things, you're, you're not trying to do it from memory. Uh, it makes life a whole lot easier. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving on to Matt. So kudos to, to TP-Link. And moving on to Matt. I believe it's the same. I think we have two Matts. But uh, anyway, here's the first one. Hey, John and Dave, this is listener Matt. Uh, just a quick point on the most recent podcast and the discussion on enabling trim and any security implications. Um, the, the person who wrote in with the question said that they had been Googling around, had gotten confused and had questions about security and et cetera. And, and I think that you guys are correct that currently um, there aren't any real security implications with enabling trim uh, you know, on Macs. But let's remember back that not too long ago, you actually had to use third-party utilities, and I think that these third-party utilities were doing some patching of some kernel extensions behind the scenes. And I think that in, obviously, recent operating system uh, versions, that has been disallowed, so you actually had to allow the running of um, you know, unsigned kernel extensions in order to get trim working and blah, blah, blah. So all of that was the situation you know, uh, a year ago. Um, now Apple actually lets you force trim if you want. And so I, I just wanted to point out that the, the question that the, the caller had, um, you know, that the, the person had asked might have been just sort of confusion from seeing a lot of older information on the internet around how we used to have to enable trim which is no longer the case. Um, but so that might be helpful for them to help make sure they realize that, um, I think as John said, right now, today, there doesn't seem to be any big security implications around enabling uh, trim on your Mac and a non-Apple SSD. Thanks, guys. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Matt. That's, uh, that's good stuff. Absolutely. And to dig into that a little bit, so I think what, what he's talking about is what they've implemented in the latest OS, something called system integrity protection. Well, right? no, he's, no, no, no. He's talking about that 
in the latest OS, you can type sudo uh, trim enable force or something. The, the, I forget the command. We'll, we'll put a link to it. In previous OSs, you could not do that, and you had to load a kernel extension. Which, that's where I was going. Well, yeah, but, but now you can't load that kernel extension. So, so it's actually more secure now. Right. But um, but you don't even have to to do well, this. That, you, you don't need trim enabler to do it. Right. Well, that was the point I'm trying to make just okay. to help people understand system integrity protection. So if you want to understand what that means at this level, um, if you go to system information and you go to software and then you look at extensions, you're going to see two attributes for an extension, one or, or kernel extensions, which is what our uh, friend just referred to. And the thing is, you cannot anymore. Uh, load ones that are not signed by either Apple or identified developer. And these hacks that hack trim were neither of those. So I guess the, the roundabout way of saying that you can't do this anymore if you have system integrity protection, because it won't allow the loading of hacked kernel extensions. That's right. That yeah, that's correct. But just to see how that's realized, um, you're going to see two columns loaded and obtained from, and unless it's obtained from either Apple or an identified developer, um, that's how it works. Yeah. I, I just thought it was fun to look at that list at some point to, to see the, the real-world implication of system integrity protection, which is... Check it out. Cool. <laughs> and uh, a couple of things while we're on this subject. First, Furby's says that uh, Trim Enabler has been replaced by Disk Sensei for the Mac. Or Sensei, I think. As Furby's? Where, 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 where is he? Uh, oh, remember, right. People, people don't know what you're talking about there. Thank you, John. I, I get to say that to you. <laughs> no, you're right. In the, in the chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Thank you. Uh, so it's worth checking that out. We'll put a link to uh, Disk Sensei in the, um, in the show notes here because that's what we do. And, uh, and then secondly, I had found an article this week by, it was on LSI's website, right? They are, they make, uh, chipsets for lots of things and including they, the, uh, SSD drives. They are the makers of the much heralded, uh, sand force, uh, SSD chipset. And there were a lot of people uh, that were saying, Hey, look, if you have this great chipset that does its own garbage collection you don't even need to worry about enabling trim and they disagree with that they say yeah our garbage collection is awesome but we don't it's impossible for us to know what things to move around um it without trim so we can't be as efficient we can do a great job but we can do a much better job with trim enabled and that's what uh essentially what trim does is it tells the SSD which pages are no longer in use. So there's pages that make up blocks and then blocks make up the, uh, essentially the drive as it were with an SSD, the block has to be erased all at once. So if you think that, um, it, you know, if you have four pages used in a 12 page block <clears throat> and you want to free up that block, you have to move the data that that's in that block of those four pages to a new empty block and then erase the original block. And now you have 12 pages available, but with trim, what happens is the OS tells the controller, Hey, look, two of those four pages are no longer in use. Yes. There's still data there, 
but they're no longer in use. So you don't need to copy them if you're doing your own garbage collection, which makes it more efficient in two ways. Number one, it only has to move two instead of four in, in our example. And number two, it because this new block now only has two of its 12 pages filled, it will be more time until that block fills up to the point where it then needs to be cleaned up again. And so you're reducing the number of writes that's happening to the SSD and all of this stuff. So trim is a really, really good idea to enable. And uh, we'll leave it at that. So LSI says. Use trim. Use tri You know, it's funny because um, as, as I'm sure you're aware, and I think uh, again, in the last show, I linked to an article that was from OWC. If you, if you talk to most of the, People at OWC, they're going to insist that you don't need to use trim because the sand force does such a swell job. Right. That's right. That's their, That's OWC's position. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like LSI, who makes the chip, uh, thinks Dis differently. Yeah. I mean, they say it's great, but look, it can be even better. There, there's just, right. you know, trim lets the OS give not just hints, but actual val valuable information to the drive controller. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, the drive controller has to guess. And that, you know, it's just how it goes. So, yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, and uh, in the chat room, uh, John, uh, not you, John, but uh, listener John says that uh, he tested. And in fact, metadata updates do change playlists without iTunes running. I believe that's what he's saying. So uh, thank you for the tests. So sweet. All right. Uh, let's see. Where are we here? Um, we might as well go to Bill because we're still on the uh, stuff from last week's show. Although we keep seeming to inject new things. And uh, Bill has a question. He says, uh, about two months ago, I activated iCloud Photo Library. While I'm generally pleased, I do have some, some questions. Um, prior to using iCloud Photo Library, I used PhotoStream. As was mentioned on a recent show, I also experienced hit or miss with PhotoStream. Most pictures uploaded, but some didn't show on all four devices. Periodically, I'd open the Photos app on my Mac, connect my phone, and verify that all the pictures I wanted uh, were there. I'd manually add any that weren't. iCloud Photo Library has done a great job of keeping one version of the truth regarding my photos synced amongst all my devices. My concern is that since using iCloud Photo Library eliminates the camera roll, I won't be able to keep my photos, my phone storage clean. And that's what we were talking about last week. Here's what I've observed so far. If I attach my phone to my Mac and open image capture, I now see an odd mix of things. 734 items appear, which is well short of the 4,400 photos and 150 videos. It shows a couple of years worth of photos taken on a Sony point and shoot camera that we used prior to getting iPhones. But by no means, uh, all of my pictures there. That makes sense. Uh, as we talked about last week, the phone is managing this um, locally and without your involvement, for better or for worse. Uh, there is now a cloud icon next to my phone in image capture, which also makes sense. The photos appear in image capture to be full size, as they're the same size I get when using get info for the same picture in photos. That makes sense. The delete icon no longer appears. We discussed that last week. In photos, a, I deleted a throwaway picture for test purposes and it deleted uh, it from the, uh, and then I deleted it from the recently deleted folder as well. The, the photo then didn't appear in the photos app on my phone, but still showed an image capture. But after about 15 minutes, it went away. Uh, 
He says, since my phone is set to store optimized photos, it seems that one of two things should happen. Either the full image should be uploaded and only an optimized version should stay, or I should have the ability to delete the full-size images on my phone like I did previously. What's going to happen as my phone fills up? I have a 64-gig phone, but only have 12 gigs free. Will full-size images be deleted? Do I need a third-party app to manage the phone's camera roll now? No. Um, <clears throat> You're just, you're seeing with image capture, we're still able to see a little bit of how the sausage is made, so, so to speak, in terms of how photos works. We don't get to control it, nor should we be able to control it because photos needs to know what it's doing. Um, the phone stores what it thinks it should store. And this is an algorithm set by Apple. And yes, it is factoring in the amount of free space that you have on your phone. So I, I think you're going to be fine. Um, it is storing smaller versions of all your pictures as thumbnails and you aren't seeing those in image capture. So you're, you're, you're peeking a little bit behind the curtain, but not too far. And I, I think maybe that's, what's confusing you is, is you're not seeing everything, but, uh, but you got to trust Apple on this. If you're going to use iCloud photo library, you're just, you just got to go all in on that. I would still, assuming you have the space on your Mac, I would still choose to store full size copies of all your photos on your Mac and then also back those up locally. But here's the thing. Um, you know, if you lose your photos because of some data, uh, you know, you, your hard drive dies or whatever, <clears throat> that's a sad thing. And, and we're going to feel for you. But the world doesn't come uh, crashing down. If Apple loses your photos because of some hard drive crash or something, the world comes crashing down. People now don't trust Apple anymore right for to maintain your data and apple knows this so i would trust apple to to maintain your data i'd still keep a local backup um but you know i think i think you're gonna be okay thoughts john mr braun well i'm not an icloud photo library type of guy so all right I don't well, know if I have any thoughts. Well, one thought I do have here, and I think it was suggested, or maybe it was in a related question. Um, I've noticed that image capture, what you see on your phone and what I see in image capture doesn't always match up. And that can yeah. be a cause for concern. I think what's happening is that especially if you have additional albums created on the phone, and I think this was my conclusion, so I would look and I would, image capture would say, hey, you got, you know, 1,500 or so photos. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. And then I look on my phone and it's like, well, you got a number that doesn't match that. And I'm like, well, why is that? And I think I did a little math and I came to the conclusion that uh, some additional albums on my phone were not being considered in the calculation. I think that's what's happening there. Oh, that's right. Because we, yeah. we keep getting a question that revolves around this and that basically I'm not seeing the same number in different places. And why is that? And I think that that's one possible reason. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I hate it when things don't match up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially even if it's off by like five or ten. I'm like, okay, where are they? Where are they? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Now they could be though, as as been pointed out, they could be in the process of being scrubbed or deleted. Um, that could be another reason why you see a discrepancy. Is that right. iCloud's doing its magic and uh, it's not caught up yet. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Uh, sticking with six sixteen, but uh, transferring into some new ground here. Listener Scott has uh, a a tip for us. He says on last week's show, you mentioned a tip about navigating to folders shown in the favorites bar in mail. 
That's cool. But what's absolutely frosty is the ability to move messages to those folders by using command, control, and the folder number. If, for example, Mac Geek Gab Archive is number three in your favorites, hitting command control three will move the currently selected message into that folder. I use this dozens of times a day. For a really advanced twist, try this. I have written several three-line Apple scripts that are invoked using keyboard shortcuts via the terrific Fast Scripts application. So, with a keyboard shortcut that I can remember, e.g., Command Control G to move messages to my Gmail archive, I can move messages in a second. Using Mail's built-in functionality with a few simple Apple scripts has allowed me to save many, many, many minutes a day when organizing my mail. Uh, I had no idea about this, adding the control key in. So that's very, very cool. Um, I love your Apple script via fast scripts. That's a great idea. Um, even better, or perhaps just different. Uh, I use mail act on from small cubed that lets you apply mail rules or trigger mail rules via a keystroke. So typically mail rules are only triggered by messages coming into your inbox. Well, Mail Acton lets you set a different set of rules, but using the same familiar rule building uh, screen, and then you can trigger them with a keystroke. So to tri to file stuff in my Mac GeekGab folder, uh, especially like if somebody, if one of you doesn't use the, like the feedback at MacGeekGab.com address and sends just to me directly, I want to put that in my Mac GeekGab folder so that I have it there and I do control G and that does two things. Number one, it marks the message unread so that I know to look at it again when I'm going through Mac Geekab questions. And then number two, it moves it over to that folder. And this is all done uh, inside mail with, with mail act on. So I will put a link to that in the show notes too, uh, so that you've got that. But yeah, very, very, very cool stuff. I, um, I love, I really do love how extensible mail is. And while we're on the subject of extensible mail, Let's talk to Kelly with this week's uh, question about that. And Kelly asks, I have what I think is a simple task. Here's what I want. Each time I move an email with or without attachments into my archives box, I want that email to be recognized by a program rule script or third party app. I don't care what then moved out of my mail program completely into another file on the Mac OCR'd. Uh, with the attachment if needed and saved as a PDF. I would think that this would be an easy task, but I have combed keyboard maestro Hazel and Apple support groups to no avail. I spent an hour on the phone with an Apple genius who looking over her shoulder suggested I might want to look at a third party email client. Why do I want to do this? I have about 30,000 emails saved in my archive folder. I don't want them there. I'm the executive director for a nonprofit uh, and I want to be able to store this stuff as PDFs. I get 75 to 200 emails every day that I do actually need to keep respond to or refer to some otherwise handle, but they can't stay in Apple mail. All right. So I don't know the magic answer here. I do. Uh, all right. I mean, mail act on, I, I would say if you used mail act on, you could do this, but you would have to do it you would just use mail act on to archive. So instead of dragging it manually to your archive folder, you'd use mail act on to do it. And then it can trigger all your scripts and do everything you want, right? That, that would be one answer, but I'm open to more. And I think we've got some in the room too. Go ahead, John. Oh, no, I was just goofing. 
Oh, all right. So no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Um, uh, one thought I think would be rather than trying to do this in mail, Dave. Yeah. I think it may be easier to try to do this perhaps from the finder. So she right? said uh, she tried uh, that by using Hazel and couldn't trigger it. But I, I'm with you on this. I think the problem is when there's attachments because the finder's version of the mail files doesn't break out the attachments. They're all just inbox um, files. Well, you know, they're, I mean, they're uh, not, they're not clean mail files is, is I, 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 think I, I under, yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. The thing is I'm looking right now. All right. So first you have to transverse the finder and this can get kind of squirrely, but, but it, it is uh, thinking as, a programmer for the time being, which is kind of what I, I am anyways. But um, so where's the mail stored? So if you're going to do this from the finder, if you go to your user folder, library, mail, V3 now, right. you're then going to see a bunch of different folders uh, which correspond to the accounts. Below that, you will then see a .mbox file, which is really just another directory. And, and you got to drill down into that. Like, for example, I'm looking at one right now. So it's, you know, big, long string of letters and numbers. Then archive.mbox. Ah, that's my archive. Okay. Well, that's your archive on your Mac. I mean, if your archive Correct. is being stored uh, on your IMAP account, it's going to be under one of your accounts. But you're right. In that V3 folder somewhere is going to be the mailbox that you want to you look at. And it's just going to be a folder. That's and then right. if you drill down further, to, to address your point, though, is that, and then if you drill down further into the folders under that .archive.mbox, you're then going to see, at some point, folders, and within it is going to be a messages folder, which is going to be the emails, and then possibly an attachments folder. Yep. But they're not the related is, to like, each other. That's the problem. Uh, they're related in that... But the attachment the isn't number, related to the message, right? Well, no, I, uh, I do not believe that's true because if I look here, I see messages. So, so the messages have a number associated with them, right? So like here I see 806, 80767.emlx. And then if I look in the attachments folder, oh, look, I see 80 blah, blah, blah. I believe that those two numbers hmm. represent the same message. Yeah. I'm yeah, just doing yeah. a quick analysis here. So uh, again, I, I believe approaching this as maybe an automator script or something similar from the finder and then dealing with them and then deleting them. Maybe. She tried maybe that. He or, he or she actually, I, I, Kelly's um, I'm not sure uh, which way that name goes in this particular uh, thing, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. He, the, Kelly tried that using keyboard maestro and Hazel. Um, and I'm thinking an automator. automator. Yeah. May, maybe well, try, try it again. Yeah, I, I think your problem that you're going to run into, I mean, if you look at the contents of any of those inbox files or the EMLX files, they, they have all the headers. They're very, very ugly. They're not formatted well. And so that you're going to run into a, a potentially big problem sort of reformatting that, especially if it's HTML email, in which case, you know, now you've got to turn that in back into HTML or process the HTML rather. It, it can be ugly. Um, you know, uh, one thought in the chat room, Brian Monroe said, why not just use Gmail and then use rules on the server? And that's a great idea. You can, you know, you can definitely do that and have the server kind of move things around or forward them to a different account and store them there. 
where you could then process as an inbox rule, right? If you, if you have anything in this group that's forwarded there, now it's in the inbox, mail can process it coming in and, and you can do all of this stuff because you can apply an Apple script to every message coming in if, if you, if you want. So that would be another way to do it. Uh, and then I started thinking about, um, Oh, what is it called? I can't think uh, Eagle filer, right? Which is, um, Michael Sai, he he used to, um, well, I guess he still writes uh, spam sieve, but Eagle Filer is built to. Well, I guess Eagle Filer doesn't store mail separately; it just searches through it. What's the one? I'm, now I'm con- I'm getting confused. There's the the um, Apple Mail Archive program. Mail steward. That's the one. Thank you very much. Yeah, and um, I'm looking at them. I was thinking along that path as well. As soon as you 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 started talking, I was like, you know, I know we've talked about this before. So there there are utilities written explicitly to archive Apple Mail, and I'm looking right now. Mail steward says the ultimate email manager for OS 10 Mountain Lion through El Capitan. Right, and one of its features is archiving your mail. So that. And they have a trial version. So that may be worthy of consideration. An Eagle Um, Filer might also be your thing. I haven't used it enough to know whether it's going to be able to, you know, apply some rules and that sort of thing. But uh, but definitely worth checking out. So. um, So, yeah, that that's where I'd head on this is. uh, Yeah. Rolling your own is ambitious, um, but. (laughs) But yeah, I, uh, but I think you and I both thought that somebody else has, because uh, it's a common problem. I yeah. Mean, what do you do with your email? I mean, you yeah. want to. Yeah. And you uh, might, and then storing it in, in mail steward, you, that might be all you need because it's out of mail and yet it's still in a place where you can trust it and, you know, search it and categorize and do whatever you want to do. So that mail steward might just be your magic answer. So it's worth checking out. All uh-huh. right. Uh, John, I want to talk about our three sponsors. Does that work for you? Are we good good with this one? We are great. All right. Our first sponsor today is PDF Pen, made by Smile at smilesoftware.com. Longtime listeners of Mac Geek Up will know that Smile has been sponsoring this show the longest. They've never stopped since they started, like, whatever, nine, ten years ago. It's been forever. And there's a reason for that. And it's because the products they make are perfect for the people like you that listen to this show. So it makes a lot of sense. PDF Pen is one of those products, and they make PDF Pen for Mac OS, formerly called OS X, currently called OS X, soon to be called Mac OS, PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone, and then PDF Pen Scan Plus. So PDF Pen for Mac OS, awesome PDF editing tool. It really... It's not something I use every day, but not a week goes by where I don't use this at least twice. Uh, You can like do all kinds of crazy things, editing text, revising text, moving things around. You can scan text in and then OCR it, 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 everything. And you can do the same thing on your iPhone and iPad with PDF pen for iPad and iPhone. You can add signatures to documents. Again, you can move things around. Very, very simple stuff. And then comes PDF pen scan plus, which truly is one of my favorite apps. You know, I do these theater shows every now and then I talk about it. I play the drums. I always get a book of music that I have to read and I have to make notes on 
Well, here's the thing. I want to run the show from my iPad. Well, PDF Pen Scan Plus makes that totally possible. And it's so easy. You take your phone and you put it over the page that you want to scan. It automatically detects the edges and it scans the page. And then if it's multiple pages that you want to scan, like I'm doing, it, you've just flipped the page. You, you're not tapping anything on the iPhone. It auto detects, boom, takes the next picture. You move it to the next page, boom, takes the next picture. You flip, move it to the left page, takes the picture, move it to the right page, takes the picture, you flip. This is literally how fast that process goes. So I can scan a hundred page book in like five minutes. Awesome, awesome stuff. You got to check all this out. Go to smilesoftware.com slash geek. Our thanks to Smile for sponsoring this episode. Our second sponsor today is Casper at casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off of the best mattress I've ever slept on, hands down. Casper started because they wanted to create the one perfect mattress and they wanted to sell it directly to consumers. Skipping this whole big warehouse thing or where you go to a store to to like shop for a mattress, which is weird. Uh, they just wanted you to pick your size and give them your address. Yeah, and your credit card, right? I mean, that's how that works. But again, coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off of what they're going to charge to your credit card. And then you have 100 nights to test this thing. Where? At home, where you sleep, because that's the right way to test the mattress. But this just isn't any mattress. This is a foam mattress. Awesome memory foam and latex foam. It's a hybrid foam mattress that's engineered to be super comfortable, super cool. They're just, they're, they're obsessive about the way they engineer these things. I've slept on them. I have one. I've slept on them when I've traveled. I've had the best sleep of my, my life traveling in San Francisco when I happened to be sleeping on a Casper mattress. It's awesome. Free shipping and returns here in U.S. and in Canada. And like I said, you get to test it out for 100 nights. If you don't like it at any time during those first 100 nights, you just call them up. They'll take it away. That's it. You get all your money back. Prices start at 500 bucks for a twin-size mattress. The most expensive retail price is 950 for a king. Again, you save 50 bucks off of those prices. So with coupon code MGG, a king is only 900 bucks shipped for free to your door in a box that makes it super easy to get it into the room you want. And then you go through this magic process in about 90 seconds. Boom. You've got a mattress. You got to check it out. Casper.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode. Our third sponsor for today is Gazelle at Gazelle.com. Gazelle buys and sells old iPhones. Now, when I say they sell old iPhones, they actually take the ones that they get in, the best of those, and then they refurbish them and then they sell them. So, yes, they're used, but they're refurbed by Gazelle and certified by Gazelle. And if, to check those out, you just go to gazelle.com and come and click. And to check those out, you just go to gazelle.com and click on Buy Smart. But if you want to sell your iPhone, you click on Sell Smart and you go there. And you tell them what you have and they'll give you a price. That price is locked in for 30 days, right? So here's the thing. Soon, Apple's going to be announcing their new iPhone. If you're someone like me and you want to upgrade, 
Well, maybe what you want to do is uh, hedge your bets a little bit and go, you know, in about a week. But go check it out today. See what they'll pay you for it. And then remember to keep going back. At some point, you're going to be able to lock in a price for that that's going to be locked in until after your new iPhone arrives and you'll get the best trade-in from Gazelle because you've done it early there. So check it out, gazelle.com. And then click sell smart, tell them what you have. They'll give you a price. You can lock it in and then you have 30 days to, to send it in. Got to check it out. Gazelle.com. Our thanks to Gazelle for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, I want to start another conversation here because, well, it, it, this is one that it seems like comes up a lot. We'll, we'll talk about both Patrick and Micah here and, um, and then we'll go. So Patrick writes, uh, he, he's well, basically sent us a, a, a note that said, Hey, look on my iPhone, my iTunes shows that I have no free space available. And yet if I float over it, it shows that I have 10 gigs of free space available. And it says it's over capacity by eight. So which is it? Uh, and this is where it gets weird. Uh, and, and, it, and you know, I said, well, what happens after you sync your phone? Because sometimes it like misreports and then you sync. It's like, oh, that screenshot is after a sync. Like, man, okay. Uh, you know, and, and the question is how to fix this. And unfortunately, my experience is, you know, you can't really dig into the iPhone. You can't do a cash cleaning in a, in a meaningful way, at least not easily, um, I, you know, backup and restore because all those temp files are not stored in a backup. Um, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's the, the crazy solution to it, but, uh, but I don't, you know, what do you think, John? I haven't run one of these for a while, but you, we've, we've, uh, talked about various iPhone cache and other cleaners. I, I haven't used one in a while because, you know, I used one recently and, and it actually, it worked pretty well. Um, it was from imyphone.com. I think I'm, I'm going to look here. There's a, um, it's a, it's a phone cleaner. I think, I think it was them. I can, I always get confused on this stuff cause there's so, Oh yeah. It, it's, um, it's I, my phone, you mate, uh, is the one that I checked out and it actually seemed to, it actually seemed to work. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the, uh, in the show notes. It's, you know, I, before you do anything like this, backup, 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 right. Um, because it gets weird. You know, the, these things are mucking about in ways that Apple never intended people to. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's certainly if what you're going to do is back up, wipe your phone and, and then restore the backup, doing this won't hurt, right? So do your backup because you now you've got it and then run this piece of software and see what happens. But yeah, it um it it actually did. It cleaned out a bunch of stuff for me. And I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up because I I'd, I'd forgotten completely about it. Yeah, I've had one program that I've run for a while. It's just called Battery. I think it actually is found under something else. And it actually does have a junk cleaner, which okay. I think will clear out some of the uh, uh, 
people define it differently. Like this one program that you identified, I actually found as well. And they have a couple of classifications here, junk files and temporary files, which they will clean out for you. Um, And then they'll do other smart things. This program I just mentioned actually has a memory category. Okay. And it it calls it memory boosts. Right now it's saying that I got 70% of my memory consumed here. But you're talking about memory, not storage, right? Uh, kind of the same thing. No, no. I mean, we're talking about RAM versus storage space, right? Well, an iPhone that's... No, no, your iPhone's a computer, right? I mean, it's got... Yes, it, I, it, I understand. You see what I'm saying? I, I think what you're talking about with the battery thing is it, it's managing your RAM for you um, to to clean out things in, in iPhone RAM. To right, keep I'm sorry. So, so it has a... Mem- yeah, so this program has two things. So it has a memory cleaner and then it has a junk cleaner. Junk cleaner. Oh, okay, gotcha. Being a cache cleaner. Okay, so it has two categories. And of course, the, the, the one that we're seeing reported by iTunes, I think would be the storage yeah the yeah. the storage or the cache um yeah that's right not not the memory or the ram yeah I, uh, yeah thanks for clarifying yeah that. of course yeah no problem all right so related to this um micah writes in and says i'm writing because i'm having a peculiar problem with my ipad mini first gen there is absolutely no free storage space so i went into the storage settings and noticed a few apps without an icon one of which was taking up 1.6 gigs I know that this app was a game because I deleted it hoping to get more space, but I never did. When I try and delete the phantom app from the storage area, the message will pop up saying that deleting will also delete all the apps data. But instead of the app name, it simply says null because the app doesn't exist. If I continue and hit delete, it vanishes from my list, but doesn't free up any space and then comes right back after I restart. Any suggestions aside from restoring? Well, you might try one of these apps, but again, back up first. Uh, yeah, it, as you know, or if you don't, when you delete an app, regardless of whether you delete it from the storage, you know, section in settings, or if you delete it just from the, the you know, the home screen, it's going to delete most of the app data. Uh, it, there's some stuff that it doesn't, but certainly the large chunks of data should go away when you delete the app. Um, sometimes they don't. And then after the app is gone, it's very difficult to delete the data as, as you're finding the phone won't do it. Sometimes these app cleaners will do exactly that. They, in fact, they target that because they know that it's a, you know, it's an easy way to get rid of, um, to get rid of that data or to get, to, to free up space for you. So it's worth trying out one of these app cleaner kind of things, but you may just have to back up and restore. The good news is, Backing up does not back up any of your temporary or cache files. So restoring will almost certainly net you free space, even space that you didn't really know you were using. Um, You know, if you're someone like me that downloads a lot of apps and winds up keeping probably more than you regularly use on your phone, um, doing a backup and restore or, or again, potentially one of these app cleaner things can help because when apps launch, they create temp files and all that. And wiping those out was, in many cases, only valuable until the next time you launch the app. But like I said, if you're like me and you keep apps around for a while without launching them, then maybe this helps. So there you go. Uh, And then in the chat room, uh, listener Jeff is saying, 
If you go to the iTunes app and try to rent a movie that exceeds the available storage space. Oh, I forgot about this tip. That's right. Um, iOS will display an error message that the movie cannot be downloaded because there isn't enough storage available. If you go check the managed storage settings after receiving that message, though, you'll find hundreds of megs of additional storage is magically available. You can keep repeating this process and free up gigabytes of space on a device that iOS claimed was full. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us of that, Jeff. We talked about that in previous episodes, but yeah, there is a way and that is the way, but you have to go um, to try and rent a movie that is larger than the space you have available. Um, So, you know, pick the HD version. It won't let you rent it, um, but it will free up this space. So yeah, there you go. That's a good tip, man. Thank you. Good, good stuff. All right. Well, John, where do we go from here? Well, we've got a few photo. All right, let's say, yeah, wait, let's try photos. That's a good, yeah, that's a good place to go. All right, cool. You want to take us to Robert? I will take us to Robert. Got good news and bad news, Robert. <laughs> Robert says, hi guys, is there a true export slash import real backup solution for the newer Apple photos? I like Apple photos and I moved to it using it as my primary photo library, but I still don't trust keeping all my photos there and only relying on iCloud and bulk data backups by Time Machine or Carbon Copy Cloner. I desperately want a true round-trip import-export style backup utility that can take all the photos from Apple Photos, create a regular disk and folder structure that contains a folder for each album and a separate file for each image. Basically, the ability to export all the photos into a regular disk structure where the album types of metadata is simply the folder name. I looked at Power Photos, and it looks like it should be able to do it, but only focuses on moving and merging between Apple Photos libraries. And not creating regular files or folders. Um, yeah, based on uh, I actually haven't used it, Dave. So maybe you could speak to that. But let me uh, let me let me see if we can wrap this up here. Sure. Um, note that I don't mind the limitation of not supporting live photos okay, or getting all the traditional edits to a photo, uh, but really don't understand why no one has created this kind of utility. As a matter of principle, anything where I keep critical data. I want to be able to round trip from the app's internal formats to a generally recognized new tool format with documents. It's, it's interesting, right? Cause this is exactly the opposite of what I did, what I talked about at the beginning of the show with, with my dad's photos, mm-hmm. right? Where I pulled in data that's in a format he wants to export to. And I don't blame him. I like mm-hmm. the, the idea of exporting from photos in a, you know, sort of platform agnostic format. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So that's the question. Yeah. I don't know how My to do reply, it. Yeah. I, well, I, I maybe have a, a suggestion. Okay. Um, uh, well, I'm not aware of anything. So Aperture, for those that used Aperture, and I used Aperture, and a lot of us did, um, they had something called an Aperture Vault, which I think is, it was their method of backing things up and retaining a lot of the information. Um, Robert's needs are a little more modest. I think he, you know, he doesn't care about retaining, you know, all the versions and stuff like that, but he'd like it in a kind of neutral, proprietary format. The good news, well, I said good news and bad news. The good news is Apple actually has an article on this called Photos for OS X. Back up your photos library. That's exactly what we want to do, right? Right. And here's what their article says. Um, Even if you use iCloud photo library, it's important that you always back up your library locally using... Uh, and here's the two bullets. Um, Time Machine, (laughs) 
which he says he doesn't want to use, or manually copying it to an external external storage device, which he said he doesn't want to do either. So that's Apple's official word on it at this point in time. Um, and then they also have a caveat. If any of your image files are stored outside of your photo library, those files known as reference files aren't backed up when you back up your library. Just, just a note for people that do this whole referenced file. Thing. Sure, sure. And I think that may have been something that Aperture would do. It would be smart enough to pull them into the vault. I, I never really did much with referenced. I always like to keep everything in one. I like to keep all my eggs in one basket or all my pictures in one file, if you will, or one library. Yeah, no, it, so, uh, you know, we'll run for fun because we, we've gotten off on some tangents here, which are fine, but, but there is a bit of a geek challenge here. So I want to, I want to crystallize it a little bit. Um, we'll run for fun in the chat room is asking what exactly it, does he want to do? And what he wants is a, essentially a copy of his photos library saved out as individual photo files, using the albums as his, as his folder structure. Now where that gets a little weird is if you have duplicates, right? Because you can have photos in multiple albums, especially smart albums and all of that stuff. So it's not as simple as just saying that you need to get a little more granular about how you would want to do this. But, but I feel like there is an opportunity here. I also feel like this is something that's probably on the list and I haven't specifically talked to Brian about this, but it, it sounds like the kind of thing that power photos would be a great candidate for, uh, and maybe, you know, version 2.0 or whatever of, of power photos. Uh, it seems like this would be a good thing to add. Now I, I say that without knowing having done really any research at all. And of course not knowing anything about how I photo uh, or photos, sorry, is going to want to do this, but it certainly seems like that would be a, um, it would be a handy utility. Um, so I, you know, I don't agree. I don't know the answer. Well, I do have one suggestion though, and I'm going to fiddle with this to see if it'll do. So all I'll say is for me, I'm my solution is what Apple recommends is that I'm perfectly happy storing it both using time machine the nice thing about time machine and, and the thing is time machine is smart enough where if you change the 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 file it doesn't back up the entire thing which in my case it's over right. 100 gigs right that would be a pain in the neck it, that still happens with parallels and some other things i use where i have a huge multi-gigabyte disk image and that still bothers me so i usually exclude them but uh Time Machine is smart enough with photos, or photos is smart enough that. Are you sure about that with Time Machine? I, I, with uh, with disk images, it shouldn't. It should do slicing on those. Yeah, it should. I may not have it set up right. Okay. Parallels. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All I know is the other day I, I ran parallels, and then all of a sudden it's like, yep, I'm doing a Time Machine backup, and it's going to be 20 gigs, and I'm like, uh, oh, no, 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 no. I may have to change it. Yeah, the parallels and and. I may not have defined the disk image, right? Or mm. I think I imported it from a prior installation. So sure. it's not banded or it's not, you know, set up smart. It's just set up as one big block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, Photos does have an export feature. So you may want to try this. And I'm going to experiment with this. So they have a file. So if you go to file. So first, if you go to all photos, which is probably where you want to go if you want to back up everything. Okay. You can select all your photos. And then you can go to file, export. And then you're going to see a choice, export. And it's going to give you the number of photos that you've selected. In my case, it was like 30,000 something, something. Okay. 
And then, and you see a dot, 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 which of course means that you're going to get another dialogue coming up and nothing's going to happen immediately. So don't panic. Sure. Then it's going to say, all right, well, what format would you like the photos exported as? And it'll give you JPEG, PNG, a few others. Uh, movie quality, if you have mo- movies stored, which you can in photos, even though it's called photos. And then the info that you want to include. So title, keywords, description, location information. And then it has a choice file naming. You can choose what you want to name the file. And then subfolder format. Um, oh. Which leads me to believe, I, I haven't uh. tried this yet, but I'm wondering if it's smart enough to name the folders per the album that the photo is in. So, so uh, huh. play, play with the export feature. That may do something approaching what you'd like, because, I mean, it's exporting it in a standard format, and it supports folders in some form. So that may do it for you or will, you know, plead to the power photos gods. <laughs> no, you might be right. So I just chose export originals. Um, I have a, a, an album folder already set up to test this. So let me look. Okay, so you're clicking on album. So, yeah, because I, that's what I want to do. Is I I want you know this this hierarchy of of albums. Oh, all right, well, right. I mean, right. why not? And no, I just got a. It barfed a bunch of photos right there in my, uh, in just in a folder. Thankfully, I was smart enough to put in a folder because you know. Yeah, you may have to first rodeo. <laughs> But but there there is a form of export. That's what he's looking for. The, yeah. uh, what's built into photos may not be refined enough for what he wants to do. But it's 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 a place to look. Right. Okay. So file name, subfolder format, size, yeah, see, full size. All right. So I'm touring it without. Um, I'm doing it as a what you call it, uh, not just raw photos. So or not raw is the wrong word. Okay. Let me try this again. So it's exporting and it barfed all the photos just out. It's again doing the same thing. So I'm not getting any any structure right. here. I mean, I'll it is barfing it. the photos out, which you know. So there's there's that, but yeah, I'm losing any structure that I that I had doing that. So yeah, yeah, close but no cigar. No cigar. No, thankfully in this case. When you're doing these tests, oh crap, it's not finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't don't do that. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're uh, when you're doing this, you know, always like test to a folder that you can just delete if it, if the contents of it turn into this. And always mess. be sure to run it on your machine that you're podcasting on. Like no, Dave, oh that's goodness, awesome John, I'm not running it on the machine I'm podcasting oh, okay. on. I'm using uh, Apple's you know screen sharing and sharing down oh, to my okay. iMac in the office. Okay, that's, no, I'm running that's, a lot of other things on this machine I'm podcasting on. <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's good. All right. Um, yeah. So yeah, there isn't. There's an opportunity here. I can, I can see why you want this, but again, the question isn't a simple one because you might have photos in multiple places. And honestly, when I pulled in all my dad's photos, um, Power Photos was smart enough, and it's like, look, I, I just pulled in whatever you know, fifteen thousand photos, and I found like two hundred duplicates, so I, you know, I ignored those. It's like, awesome, sweet. All right, um, David, 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 David asks, uh, where are we here? I'm gonna get down to his question. 
Uh, I'm running an early 2008 MacBook. Uh, I've replaced the hard drive and maxed out the RAM. Um, uh, let's see where we are here. Um, I know you generally choose not to use Mike. Where are we here? Why, why am I? Uh, where are you? Am I on the wrong, David? I feel like somehow I am. Anyway, um, David asks somewhere. Oh, here we are. Okay, sorry. I went too deep into his question. My apologies. He says, in each of our accounts on my computer, under pictures, there is now a file called iPhotoLibrary.MigratedPhotoLibrary, as well as a file of similar but not identical size called Photos Library. Each of mine are around 19 gigs in size. While my wife's migrated file is just over five gigs and photos is just under four. I'd like to get rid of the migrated iPhoto files if it's safe to do. What do you think? So here's <sighs> here's the thing. Um, back up first, of course. But you can delete those if they are if you've launched photos and confirmed that, you know, you believe all the data actually migrated in fine. Fine. Uh, you can delete them. However. Don't be sad when your free space doesn't change by 19 gigs and five gigs. Um, it might change by a little bit, but it's not necessarily going to change by the amount that's being reported in the finder by these migrated photo library files and the or migrated iPhoto library, whatever it is. Uh, and the reason is when Apple does the migration from iPhoto library to photos library, it doesn't make copies of your data. It just creates new pointers to your data, right? So the same, the very same picture file is being read by both photos and iPhoto, but it's, it's not, if you delete it from the, uh, if you delete the, the old iPhotos version or iPhoto version, the file still exists. It's actually pointing to the same location on the disc, and the photos version, because it's pointing to that same location, will keep that data around, even though it's essentially you've got one file on your disk and two entries in your directory that are pointing to it. So you're removing one of those entries in the directory. But because another entry in the directory points to it, the file will be kept around. If this, if this, <clears throat> if this sounds screwy and dangerous, it kind of is. But it mostly works just fine. But you do want to do a backup first, just in case there's some corruption on your disk at the sort of the file system level that makes this not work the way it's supposed to. So, yeah, you can delete this migrated photo library thing, but you're not going to get 19 gigs back. You might get a little bit of space back because there's some other things in the old iPhoto library that are unique to that and then will just disappear. Uh, so you might, you know, maybe you'll get a gig free. And that's not a bad thing, um, but you're not going to get 19 gigs free uh, by doing this. So just bear that in mind. But yeah, it's totally safe to do in, as long as you have a backup. <laughs> right, John? And Apple says as much. Now, here's an offshoot. So number one, so Apple says this, and you'll see that I provided a link to this little article here. But um, Apple says what Dave said, is that photos save space by sharing images with them, uh, by basically not creating a whole new library. It does something smart in the background. Right. And actually, Apple's suggestion is you don't really have to delete the old one. You're, uh, I'll say that with a caveat. Uh, what they also say, the thing is, is that the, the, the old migrated 
um, library. Yeah. You can still open it if you choose to still hold on to iPhoto or Aperture. You can still open and play with that. Sure. Though of course the changes will only apply to that. So if you if you you know, just to future proof everything, if you decide, oh my gosh, you know, I wanted to edit uh, one of my old photos, even though it's been migrated with the old program, you can still do that if you save the, the old one. I, I guess the, the only thing that I did notice, Dave, is that although you don't duplicate the space, from what I saw, Time Machine isn't smart enough to realize this. Is After I did the migration, it was like, hey, look, there's this huge new file here. Let me back it up. And it took up and it started saying, yep, I'm going to take up the exact amount of space there. So that that may be a compelling reason yeah. to get rid of the old one is because Time Machine isn't smart enough to realize that this smart thing has happened, whereas right. the OS is. Which is interesting because Time Machine uses the exact same technology to manage the multiple right. the versions hard, of its backups. Hard links. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah, a good or at point, least though. that was that was my experience after I did the migration. Your yeah. your mileage may vary, but um, yeah. mine didn't. I was like, well, "Why are you creating a huge backup again? What are you doing, man? Yeah, what's happening here? Yeah, sweet, good stuff, great, great stuff, great what? interaction from the chat what room today. To the time, uh, really, really good stuff. Thank you so much, folks. I mentioned it once in the show, but I'll say it again. If you want to send in your thoughts, feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Questions, tips, cool stuff found, geek challenges, whatever you want. We'd love to hear from you. Um, yeah, feedback at MacGeekGab.com. 224-888-GEEK is the phone number to call. And, John, geek is? Uh, I think it's still 4335. You are correct. Uh, you can find us. Uh, our Facebook group has some great stuff. In fact, we talked about something that we had posted there, that SSD trim article. But uh, but you can post stuff there, too, and you can help and answer and really just join the community. Go to MacGeekUp.com slash Facebook. That'll bring you right to the group. Very good stuff. I want to thank uh, Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth here. I want to thank all our premium listeners, too. That uh, Well, I want to thank all of our premium listeners. Uh, if you want to learn more about that at MacGeekUp.com, you can. Uh, premium listeners help support the show directly, and we certainly uh, appreciate that. And couldn't do what we do without you. You are a huge part of what it takes to make this show a success. So thank you very kindly. In this episode, we heard from premium listeners Chris Brian, Matt, Bill, Scott, and I believe that was it, and uh, and I think Jeff. So thank you so much. Uh, and then, of course, our sponsors as well. Uh, we had, uh, as we mentioned in the show, PDF pen from Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek, Casper at casper.com slash MGG, Gazelle at gazelle.com. We have Barebones Software at barebones.com. Other World Computing, who we mentioned in the episode, uh, at uh, maxsales.com. Power Photos from Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, you started us. Why don't you finish us off? Give them uh, your favorite three words of advice. My favorite three words of advice? That's right. Um, don't get caught. Made up.